We often say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but for some multinational firms, their tax affairs often do. In May 2013, Apple's chief executive, Tim Cook, was being grilled by US senators about the nature and structure of the company's tax affairs. The senators were scrutinising a complex corporate structure and how Apple had come to amass billions of dollars on largely untaxed profits offshore. The current figure that's put on profits that Apple has hoarded offshore is said to be over 100 billion US dollars. Mr Cook's retort to the subcommittee was, we don't depend on tax gimmicks. We don't stash money on some Caribbean island. As New York Times reporters Jesse Drucker and Simon Bowens noted after the release of the Paradise Papers, true enough, the island Apple would soon rely on was in the English Channel. Apple's journey to Jersey started when, after international pressure, the Irish government began to crack down on the type of tax structure Apple had employed. Prior to the crackdown, if Irish tax authorities were satisfied that a company was managed and controlled abroad, they were not liable for much tax. The loophole for Apple emerged because US tax law holds that subsidiaries need to be incorporated in the United States to be tax residents. As Ireland began to change its laws, Apple sought assistance from the Bermuda-based and serendipitously named law firm Appleby to help them find a haven for their tax affairs. Appleby's stationery is adorned by the slogan, the right people, the right places. Like many in this room, my life's better for the invention of the iPhone and, for that matter, the iPad. I still think one of the greatest university graduation speeches ever given is Steve Jobs' 2005 Stanford Address. If you haven't heard it, go and read it. Here's a little snippet. Death is very likely the single best invention in life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will be gradually become the old and be cleared away. Your time is limited, so don't waste it by living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is, the, uh, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. I've got to say, that's about as close as a business executive has ever come to poetry. I continue to be a fan of the company Steve Jobs once ran. But I want Apple to succeed based on product innovation, not tax innovation. Alas, as a result of the extraordinary Paradise Papers leak to the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung and shared with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, we have a glimpse at how firms such as Nike, Google, Apple and Facebook use shell companies and tax havens. The shenanigans uncovered by the Paradise Papers, the Panama Papers, the US Senate Subcommittee, the Australian Senate Economics References Committee, uh, chaired by Senders Dastiari and Ketter, and tax advocacy groups, to name just a few, are not always illegal. But what is legal is not always morally or economically sound. For example, a concentrated market can become even more distorted if an incumbent has tax advantages that a potential new competitor doesn't have access to. Public health and education services are threatened by the erosion of the tax base by tricky tax tactics. Aggressive tax planning can erode public confidence in the tax system itself. 
After all, one reason that most of us pay the taxes we owe is because we believe we live in a society where our fellow citizens do the same. Bad apples can spoil the whole barrel. And let's put it plainly. There's a lot of crooks in tax havens. Gabriel Zuckman, an economist at the University of California, Berkeley, estimates that around four-fifths of the money in offshore bank accounts is there in breach of other countries' tax laws. Tax havens are used by drug runners, extortionists and money laundering. They're used to hide the proceeds of fraud, corruption and tax evasion. Moreover, tax havens make it frighteningly easy for firms to divert profits onto their sunny tax-free shores. Last year, reporters compiled a five-step guide showing how to establish your own secret firm in a tax haven. They found the process takes about 10 minutes, costs about $2,000 and guarantees anonymity. Annual fees can be steep, but the start-up process is almost trivially simple. As the reporters put it, it's not unlike booking an international plane ticket or an overseas hotel. Tax havens have been estimated to hold at least $7 trillion in assets, costing the global economy hundreds of billions in lost taxes every year. The Cayman Islands has fewer people than Bendigo, more foreign-owned deposits than Japan. Head to the Cayman's waterfront and amidst the diving shops you'll find Ugland House, a building that stands as the registered office address for more than 18,000 companies. I'm guessing most of you don't share your company headquarters with 17,999 other companies. Zuckman's at the forefront of research into the use and abuse of tax havens. In a recent study, he found offshore wealth held by Australians was approximately 6% of GDP using 2007 data. In today's prices, that would mean over 100 billion in assets held offshore by wealthy Australians. We know these people aren't just wealthy, they're super wealthy. In collaboration with two other researchers, Annette Altstutter and Niels Johansson, Zuckman studied how tax evasion affects inequality. Using microdata from large profile leaks, including the Panama Papers and the HSBC Switzerland leak, and matching it to macrodata from Norway, Switzerland, Sweden and Denmark, they found that tax evasion rises sharply with wealth a phenomenon that random audits can fail to capture. On average, about 3% of personal taxes are evaded in Scandinavia. But this figure rises to 30% in the top 0.01% of the wealth distribution. Offshore wealth is similarly distributed and extremely concentrated. About 80% of offshore wealth belongs to the top 0.1% of richest households, and about 50% to the top 0.1%. So just to be clear, half the DOSH in tax havens is owned by the top one ten thousandth of the population. Now that study only looked at some of the offshore assets, but it's fair to suppose we can measure the iceberg by looking at its tip. After all, it's pretty unlikely that a significant fraction of offshore wealth belongs to households in the bottom 99% of the wealth distribution. Offshore private banks typically require customers to have a minimum amount of financial assets to invest. 
you won't pass the million dollar investment threshold unless you're a multimillionaire. And it goes without saying that for Australia to be a leader in tackling multinational tax avoidance, our investigators need to be properly resourced. Unfortunately, the coalition government slashed thousands of staff from the tax office since 2014. They're big on announcements, but their measures have been mostly cosmetic. More Revlon than revolution. The people in this room think hard about tax every day. You know the integrity of the system rests on people feeling faith that everyone is paying their fair share. But sometimes things can be legal, yet push the boundaries of being ethical. You know how critical it is to get tax policy right, to strive towards the trio of goals, equity, efficiency and simplicity. Labor's concern about multinational tax fairness doesn't stem from a fear of foreigners. Quite the opposite. We believe that unless the rules are fair, we won't be able to maintain strong support for openness. One of the central challenges of this age is the rise in right-wing populism. Not only the British Brexit decision and the rise of Donald Trump, but also right-wing parties in Germany, Austria and Hungary, making the argument that those countries would be better off retreating from the global economy. By contrast, Bill Shorten and Penny Wong have been spending time engaging with South Korea and Japan. Chris Bowen, Jason Clear, Matt Thistlethwaite and Penny Wong have launched an important policy called Future Asia about how an Australian Labor government would engage with our region. For my own part, I released a short book last month published by Penguin and the Lowy Institute. It's called Choosing Openness and argues in favour of trade, migration and foreign investment and the policies needed to support them. Foreign investment helps create opportunities that would not otherwise have existed. Australia's sugar production industry was kick-started in 1855 by Colonial Sugar Refinery, now known as CSR. Australian manufacturing was boosted when Schweppes opened a bottling facility in 1877, when Kodak set up its first film plant in 1908, when Heinz began canning baked beans in 1935, uh, and of course, the significant foreign investment uh, during the 20th century by foreign automotive uh, manufacturers, uh, particularly here in South Australia. Uh, today, foreign firms have established themselves atop a range of Australian industries. In Melbourne, defence firm Lockheed Martin is opening a skunk works research facility, focusing on quantum computing, hypersonics and robotics. In your sector, foreign investment uh, by Royal Dutch Shell, Japan's Inpex, US firms such as Chevron and ConocoPhillips is the main reason Australia is set to become the world's largest liquid natural gas producer by 2020. A corollary of this, as the Reserve Bank's pointed out, is that most of the profits will flow offshore, meaning that the main benefit to Australians in the future will come through employment and any taxation revenue that's collected from the projects. In economic terms, the case for foreign investment is that it fills the gap between domestic savings and domestic investment. In 2016, that gap was $44 billion, about one-ninth of total domestic investment. So if we ended all foreign investment, total Australian investment would fall by about one-ninth. One-ninth fewer roads, one-ninth fewer solar farms, one-ninth fewer buildings. Or alternatively, we'd have to increase savings, meaning the typical household might have to cut consumption 
by $4,500 each year. Either of those outcomes, a one-ninth drop in total investment or a $4,500 cut in annual household spending, would have a dramatic impact on the lives of most Australians. As a recent Treasury study concluded, restrictions on capital inflow would reduce the well-being of Australians. Yet, if the public doubt that multinational firms pay their full share of tax, it'll be harder to maintain public support for openness. Multinational taxation is a particular issue in industries that are highly capital intensive, such as technology and resource extraction. If the profits mostly go offshore and the employment impact is limited, tax becomes one of the main ways in which the community can directly benefit. While competition between countries is usually healthy, the race to the bottom in corporate tax rates can be distinctly unhealthy, particularly when firms then use accounting tricks to shift profits to the lowest tax countries. On multinational tax and tax havens, Labor's been leading the policy debate. We didn't wait for the Paradise Papers leak. Indeed, well before the Panama Papers, when we were in government, we delivered the transfer pricing laws that were fundamental in the Australian Taxation Office's recent transfer pricing victory in court, and the lion's share of the $44 billion in liabilities raised by the ATO against multinationals. Laws, indeed, that the Liberal and National parties voted against. Of course, that didn't prevent them from trying to take credit for those victories, rolling out an $8 million information campaign. You may have seen the flash advertisements featuring ball bearings and wooden tracks that have and still do run across national television, print, radio and online. Those ads can seem a little less quaint when you remember that you're paying for them. Why do they do it? Uh, well, Treasury's testimony to Senate budget estimates early this year stated, research has shown that the general population and small business indicated the tax system was seen to be structured so that multinationals and big business were not contributing their fair share, meaning that population and small business were taking on an unfair burden. The research also indicated there was little or no knowledge of the government's tax integrity measures. With net national debt now exceeding $330 billion, the general population might reasonably ask why the Turnbull government's borrowing millions of dollars to spend on partisan taxpayer-funded ads. While they're focusing on the ad campaign, we've been focusing on policy development. In March 2015, less than halfway through our first term in opposition, Bill Shorten, Chris Bowen and I announced a policy suite on multinational tax that closed debt deduction loopholes and delivered billions to the budget bottom line. The government has dismissed it and indeed sometimes boasts about how they won't touch those loopholes. In May this year, Labor announced one of the world's most comprehensive tax haven transparency packages. As Justice Louis Brandis put it, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Labor's reforms include public reporting of country-by-country country reports, requiring the Australian Taxation Office to make country-by-country country reports, or excerpts thereof, publicly accessible. High-level data on how much tax is paid in jurisdictions in which the firm operates, number of employees and related material. To those who say this can't be done, I'd simply answer by pointing out that the European Union have already moved on public country-by-country country reporting, with some sectors operating under the European Union tax transparency regime for years, while the United Kingdom is able to release such reports publicly under regulations. 
Some major Australian resource firms already report country by country tax on a voluntary basis. Australia has implemented laws requiring multinational corporations with revenues over a billion dollars to have to submit country by country reports. Public disclosure of those reports would make country by country reporting much more useful to developing countries, other businesses, shareholders, uh, civil society, academics and journalists. Labor would also provide protection for whistleblowers who report on entities evading tax to the Australian Taxation Office and allow individuals who highlight tax evasion to collect a share of the penalty collected. The Turnbull government, while releasing some draft whistleblower reforms, hasn't committed to the important role of rewards. Britain and the United States have existing reward or incentive schemes in their tax enforcement. And the British program has been particularly prominent in recent years, in part due to growing community concern about tax avoidance. Labor would also implement a publicly accessible registry of the beneficial ownership of Australian legal entities, including trusts. That would fully implement the G20 principles that Australia signed three years ago and ensure transparency over who ultimately owns a company, rather than just who's listed on the paperwork. The Financial Action Task Force found Australia's beneficial ownership regime to be partly compliant regarding companies and completely non-compliant regarding legal arrangements such as trusts. Trusts are regularly cited in the use of tax havens, adding an extra layer of opacity to many firms' arrangements. Labor would also amend government procurement process requirements, such that government tender processes require all companies to state their country of domicile for tax purposes. This wouldn't prevent such firms from tendering, but it acknowledges that the public who are funding such work are entitled to know the firm's tax domicile. We would also require mandatory reporting of a specific material tax risk, tax haven exposure to shareholders which would be a nudge in having companies include reputational risk and the involvement of shareholders in part of their tax management practices. The proposal would amend the Corporations Act to require disclosure of dealings in international material tax risk jurisdictions to shareholders. The Australian Tax Office would issue guidance on the types of activities and detail businesses are required to disclose. A list of jurisdictions would be maintained by the Australian Tax Office and issued as a guidance note to inform companies' corporate governance regimes. That list would be similar to the design of the European Union's proposed EU-wide blacklist, including jurisdictions such as Andorra, Liechtenstein, Guernsey, Monaco, Mauritius, uh, Liberia, Seychelles, the US Virgin Islands. Aside from existing disclosure requirements relating to company financial positions or operations, public policy considerations are a part of the Corporations Act. For example, Section 298 of the Corporations Act has a mandatory requirement that a company's annual report include a director's report. Section 299 requires that the director's report include if the entity's operations are subject to any particular and significant environmental regulation under a law of a commonwealth or a state or territory, give details of the entity's performance in relation to environmental regulation. So it's not as radical as some have argued. But nonetheless, there have been a scare campaign from the Conservatives about our transparency proposals. We've also had accusations that Labor's reforms, uh, which simply increase information 
are a harbinger of Australia's Iron Curtain. To assuage any outstanding red scares, I'll turn to former BlackRock Managing Director Morris Pearl, who now chairs the Patriotic Millionaires Group in the US. That public policy solutions that encourage political equality, guarantee a sustaining wage for working Americans, and ensure that millionaires, billionaires and corporations pay their fair share of tax. In short, Pearl wants to save capitalism from the cronies. He writes, as an investor who's been entrusted with helping to safeguard other people's money over many years, I value the high degree of disclosure required from American public companies. Corporations and the world in which they operate change every day, so investors need to know the risks their money faces. Incredibly, even although the blowback against egregious tax practices is a substantial risk to multinational companies and a significant threat for shareholders, it's often impossible for investors to determine how healthy a company really is and whether or not the profits are merely a reflection of aggressive tax planning. With companies engaged in high-risk tax avoidance, the investing public needs more information clearly expressed. Investors should, at a minimum, be given a list of all countries in which a company operates, the revenue and earnings attributed to each country, and the amount of taxes paid in each. There might still be a dispute, but at least investors would be working from the same numbers. Now, the transparency policies Labor has announced are not a panacea, but they do complement and reinforce strong tax laws and the shutting of loopholes. Firms operating on Australia through tax havens are on notice that a shortened Labor government will open the shutters and let the sunlight in. Many firms who are already doing the right thing will welcome greater transparency. Those who are doing things their customers wouldn't support might need to rethink their approach. As the global head of Appleby's corporate department wrote to an e in an email to his senior partners three years ago, for those of you who are not, not aware, Apple are extremely sensitive concerning publicity. I've spoken plainly to you today because I believe you have a right to understand Labor's specific tax policies. As Australia's opposition, we do the nation no favours if we try to obfuscate, dodge or deceive our way into office. That's why you've seen Bill Shorten's opposition produce more policies than any other opposition in decades. From trade policy to fiscal policy, vocational training to the national broadband network. We're committed to outlining our fully costed plans to the Australian people. As respected economics commentator Peter Martin recently noted, the policies are not to everyone's liking but at least they're set down on paper. Unless things change, by this time next year we'll be faced with a choice between a government that makes things up as it goes along and a government in waiting that knows what it wants to do. Labor's vision is of an Australia that's more open, more equal and more engaged with the world. We want to raise living standards for everyone, not just the fortunate few. We appreciate the chance to engage with your sector, as indeed I did in July when I spent a day speaking with management and staff at Chevron's Gorgon project on Barrow Island. I appreciate the chance to speak with you today and look forward very much to continuing the conversation. <laughs>